Hello and welcome. The fuel has been loaded. Everyone's ready. We are prepared for a search across the solar system for some secrets. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Yes, welcome back. Welcome along. My name's Dan. This is the only show that explores the entire universe every single week and finds some brilliant science lurking around. Thank you for listening, for following, for sharing with everyone you know. This week, we'll chat to a science expert and natural world genius. Their name is Helen Pilcher. Now, we talk about whether we can bring back extinct creatures and if that is actually a good idea. Also, you can hear how she got to tell the Beano about science. And then we looked at the, the qualities that that fart had, so how loud it is, how long it is, what frequency it is, uh, and looked at the characteristics that make a fart really satisfying and then turned it into a mathematical equation. And we'll head to the smartest school in the solar system, Deep Space High, to learn about earthquakes and volcanoes. This planet you're sitting on is travelling at an incredible 1,000 miles an hour. You just don't really feel the speed because, well, it's like when you're in a train or a car. Everything around you is moving at the same speed. That's right. Planets move in all sorts of ways you might not realise, like under your feet. It's a mad muddle of movement down there. And I've got your science questions to answer, as always. This week, it's all about why we don't get dizzy when we're always spinning and... Why we close our eyes when we sneeze. I wonder if you can figure that out before we get there. Let's see. It's a brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news for the week. What experts think is a meteor has been spotted flying through the sky over England. Sightings were seen all over the country. Maybe you saw one too. The burning flames streaked across the night. Meteors can be seen. They're small bits of dust or even huge chunks of space rock in our atmosphere that burn up when they move so quickly through the air. I love the fact that we can see space coming into contact with everything around our planet and that you can actually watch it every now and then from down here on the ground. It's so brilliant. Also, a jumbo jet released a rocket over the Atlantic Ocean earlier this week trying to send nine satellites into space. It just touched space but it didn't get high enough to properly push the satellites through the atmosphere. It's not all awful, though. Lessons have been learned, and the Virgin Orbit rocket will try again later this year. I'm very excited to find out how the team get on. And we'll finish with some good news. We are fixing the ozone layer. Have you heard about this before? It's a layer of ozone gas. It surrounds the Earth, a bit like a force field. And it absorbs much of the radiation from the sun and it protects us. Now, unfortunately, because of the things that humans have done over the last hundred years or so, spraying deodorant cans, that kind of stuff, we've made holes in the layer, which means we get sunburn easier. But an agreement almost 40 years ago to stop using these harmful gases have worked and the ozone layer is reforming. Now, this is brilliant news, especially when we're talking about the climate crisis, because it shows that things that we can do right now can make a change for good, and we need to remember that. Let's check in with the A to Z of engineering now. We started this series last week on the show, and it's all a mystery. We're headed to the Engineer Academy, exploring everything from the A right the way through the alphabet to Z of things that we learn and what we can make 
to help make the world a better place. We're going right the way from A to Z. We get a different letter every day. So let's spin the wheel this week to find out what type of engineering we're exploring with Engers, our engineering expert. Hello and welcome to another Engineering Academy, where we're exploring an A to Z of everything engineering. Let's spin the wheel and see where we're engineering today. Over to Engers to spin the wheel. It's F, and F is for floating wind farms. Thanks, Engers. Wind farms have become a common sight in the countryside and make a valuable contribution to producing green energy. Today, there are over 11,000 wind turbines across the UK, generating enough electricity to power 8.4 trillion LED bulbs. How amazing is that? Now, we all know that to make a wind turbine turn, you need wind and a good supply of it. And one of the best places to find this is in the North Sea. So we send Engers to find out more. Over to you, Engers. Wind turbines have been built in the sea for over 30 years. The majority are inshore, which means close to the mainland where water is shallower, and so installing the supporting platforms is relatively easy. The various parts of the turbines are transported on large vessels, with cranes and lifting machinery putting them in place. Wind and waves rock the structures, and salt water corrodes the supporting platforms. Also, being close to land, coastal birds can be injured by the blades, and people living nearby can have their sea view spoiled by the turbines. So what can be done? An answer might be to go further out, to the offshore, around 12 miles from land, where the sea can be over 500 metres deep. Being further away from land, the winds are much stronger, as much as 40 miles per hour, which means the turbines work much harder and produce more energy. There are also fewer birds to be harmed by the blades. The challenge, though, is that with water so much deeper and being farther away from land with very hostile sea conditions, how are the turbines built and maintained? New technology is providing answers with floating wind turbines that don't need to be secured to the seabed. Now, as each of the wind turbines can be 120 metres high and weigh thousands of tonnes, you might be thinking, how do you get something so massive and heavy to float? The answer again comes down to engineering. So let's dive in and get the lowdown. The science behind how massive structures float originated in ancient Greece over 2,000 years ago when Archimedes discovered that a body totally or partially submerged in water experiences a vertical upward thrust equal to the weight of the water dislodged. Think about when you get into a bath. The water goes up as you sink in, right? Archimedes discovered that the weight of the water that's displaced by your body is equal to the weight of something called the buoyant force. A ship displaces an amount of water equal to its own weight. If it displaced less water than its weight, it would sink. But even if physics helps structures to float, why don't they fall over? The secret is cables and anchors which tether the floating platform to the seabed. 
Currently, it is technically possible to install floating platforms in water that's between 60 and 300 metres deep. Engineers are looking at extending this range to shallower water, up to 30 metres, and deeper water, up to 800 metres. Back at our floating wind farm, anchors have already been dropped into the sea before the turbine and platform arrive. They have been built on land and are towed out by tugboats. This is a much cheaper and simpler process than building the structures at sea. And because the anchors can be moved, the whole thing can be moved to a totally different place if windier waters are found. Once up and running, the wind turns the blades and the turbine converts the kinetic energy, that's energy from movement, into electricity, which is transported by underwater cables to an offshore substation and from there to an onshore substation on the coast and finally to homes via the national grid. Thanks, Engers. As you can imagine, there's a huge range of people involved in the process. From mechanical engineers who develop turbines, structural engineers who work on the enormous towers and platforms, as well as specialists in electricity and energy. If you'd like to find out more and meet the team at Shell, head over to the Fun Kids website. And that's our take on the letter F. It's been fantastic. If you'd like to check out some other types of engineering, why not check out farming, factory, fermentation, or field engineering? Engineer Academy, created with support from the Royal Academy of Engineering. If you would like to find out more about the A to Z, visit funkislive.com slash engineer. All right, then it's time for my favourite part of the show. I hope it's yours too, where I answer your science questions. Anything that you send over, either as a voice message at funkidslive.com or by leaving a review on Apple. And remember, every month we have a bonus episode where I do nothing but answer your questions. If you want to get involved with that, you need to become a subscriber to Fun Kids Podcast Plus. Have a look at that on our website to find out more. First up this week, it's from Carice, who is in Cheshire, who wants to know why we don't get dizzy when the world spins. This was left as a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a brilliant question because it's something we never really think about. It's got quite a simple answer. We don't get dizzy when the world spins because we're used to it. We're spinning with it. It spins at pretty much the same rate and speed all of the time. It doesn't get faster or slower. So we don't notice it. It's always happening. It's relative to us. We're traveling quite fast through the universe around the sun, but we don't notice that, do we? It's like when you're on a plane flying over 500 miles an hour. You don't notice that speed because you're going at the same speed as well. Your brain gets used to things very, very quickly, Carice. Thank you for the question. Here's another one also sent in as a review over on Apple Podcasts from Arwen in Gloucestershire. Arwen. It's an amazing name. It sounds like you would do battle with King Arthur. Old-fashioned, traditional, a little bit mysterious. Uh, Arwen wants to know, why do we close our eyes when we sneeze? Again, a brilliant question, something I've never thought about. There are a few ideas about this. Now, the general science is it's to do with your nervous system. That's your brain. It's all of your nerves. It controls what you do and how you feel. When your brain sends a message to your nose saying, 
we need to get rid of everything right now. We need you to sneeze. It also sends a message to your eyes to blink. It's that easy. That's the connection. Experts think that the reason that happens is to do with whatever you're sneezing out. Your brain doesn't want it to get back into your body through the eyes, so it closes the eyes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen, maybe when a grown-up is driving and they don't want to take their eyes off the road, sometimes they'll try and make their eyes stay open when they sneeze and they look a bit like a, a monster from a sci-fi movie. It's always fun to watch. Arwen, thank you so much for the question. If there is something you want answered uh, next week on this show, best way is to get to funkidslive.com. We've got a really easy way there. Uh, if you find the Science Weekly page of leaving a voice note, or you can drop it on Apple Podcasts and you can get involved with our bonus episode full of your questions every month by subscribing to us at Fun Kids Podcasts Plus. It's time for this week's Dangerous Dan. We do this all the time. We look at some of the, the most mean, the most dangerous, and the most terrifying things that happen all around the world and into the universe. This week, we're heading under the water, into the ocean. And we're scuba diving. Have you ever been scuba diving? It's brilliant. I've been a couple of times. You're floating around by coral reefs, swimming over tiny sharks, trying to high-five turtles, then you get told off for getting too close. Well, scuba stands for self-contained underwater breathing apparatus. Uh, You have this tank on your back. It's full of compressed air. That's a lot of air that's been squeezed down into something smaller. Let's you breathe lets you swim really deep underwater. It's incredible, it's mind-bending, and it can also give you the bends. You see, when you swim deeper and deeper down into the ocean, the water all around you, above you, gets heavier. It presses down, squeezes you, the pressure becomes huge, and that makes your lungs shrink. Get this, if you dive down to 33 foot under the ocean, there's twice the amount of pressure on your lungs as there is on land. If you go further, double that, 66 foot, you get three times the amount. And it keeps going. As you double your depth, you triple the pressure on your lungs. If you imagine a bottle of fizzy drink, right, when you open it, all of that gas rushes out very quickly, doesn't it? Sometimes uh, bubbles spews over the surface. That's almost what happens when the air in the tank and in your lungs... Now, the air in the tank has oxygen in it, which is good for you. It's also got some nitrogen in it, which uh, a lot of that can be very bad for you. And if you've dived down quite deep, you can't come up too quickly. Because then, like a cork popping out of a fizzy bottle, the nitrogen gas can escape into your body very quickly. And it's not meant to be there. It can make you feel really sick, it changes the way your blood works, and it can even make you die. That's called the bends, which is decompression sickness. But experts have figured out how to get around this. When you go down deep, you have to come out slowly. You stop at points on the way to let the gas settle down, to let it slow, to let the pressure equalise itself, and to get your body used to it. And that's how you can scuba dive without the bends, a very dangerous nitrogen poisoning that can happen way down deep in the ocean. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Now, sometimes I really love speaking to people who work in science. They've made science their life and just finding out how they've managed it. This week, we're chatting to the natural world expert and science writer, Helen Pilcher. Thank you, Helen, for being there. Thank you very much for having me. I have to tell you, I've got my dog asleep on my lap at the moment as well. So if you hear any weird noises like snoring or snuffling, that is my dog. Well, what breed is the dog and what's their name? 
Well, uh, he is a cockapoo. So he's a little black and white cockapoo, like a Disney dog with a white nose. And his name is Higgs. And that is like a science reference because um, he's named after a scientist called Peter Higgs, who discovered like really, really, really tiny bits of matter. So he's called Higgs after this scientist. Well, uh, people listening might know about the, the Higgs boson. This, is it the same Higgs? This was when they were trying to smash two particles into each other to, to blow it wide open. What do you remember about that experiment, Helen? Well, so you're absolutely right. So he's called Higgs after the Higgs boson. And the Higgs boson is this tiny, tiny subatomic, which means really tiny, particle of matter. And people said that this subatomic particle would have been around at the beginning of time. And it would have been the sort of particle that would have given rise to everything. So all the stuff that we can touch, all matter, all like literally everything, rocks, trees, the starting block for that. And because it was such a big idea, people called this particle the God particle. And so my dog is called Higgs after the scientist, but he's not the God particle, he's the dog particle. (laughs) (laughs) You see, when I introduced you, Helen, I was saying that I love chatting to people who have made science their life and you don't just work in it, write about it, you it's in your home. Your dog's named after it. <laughs> he is, yes. Yeah. Well, listen, you're a natural world expert, which sounds fantastical. What does that mean, though? Well, so I predominantly write about nature and science for a living. And where I can, I try and smash the two together. So sort of like the science behind nature. So I'm interested in natural history very broadly. I like creepy crawlies. I like moths. I put a moth trap out in my garden most nights and see what moths are out there. Uh, I'm interested in the natural world. But I've also had like a really, really deep interest in, in fossils and dinosaurs. So, for example, one of the things I write about, one of the things I'm really interested in is whether or not scientists could bring dinosaurs back to life. Um, and they call this de-extinction. And there are scientists out there now, excuse me, my dog is just jumping back on my lap. <laughs> <laughs> there are scientists out there now who are trying to bring back certain extinct creatures from extinction. Uh, so that's one of the things that I'm really interested in. So yeah, I guess I'm a natural history expert who likes a bit of natural history and who likes a bit of science thrown in, basically. Talking about scientists trying to bring back creatures from extinction how are they going about it i mean we've seen i mean so many films obviously jurassic park being the most famous when they do this and it doesn't doesn't go brilliantly um, <laughs> how are they dipping their toes in this water at the moment Yeah, so Jurassic Park isn't perhaps the best advert for this. It doesn't end very well. And I should start by saying, although like uh, many of your listeners might like to see a dinosaur like a T-Rex, I know I would, that is never going to happen because dinosaurs died out too long ago. This technology only works with species that went extinct much more recently. So dinosaurs disappeared about 65 million years ago. But what about the woolly mammoth? So the last woolly mammoth disappeared about 5,000 years ago. And how they're going about this is you can dig up the remains of woolly mammoths that died in the Arctic and have been frozen ever since. You can get cells from those bodies From those cells, you can get DNA. So that's the genetic recipe 
for making a mammoth. You find out the bits that are really special and unique to the mammoth, and then you put those in an elephant cell. So you're basically changing the DNA, the genetic recipe of an elephant, to make it more mammoth-like. And there are at least three groups of scientists who are interested in doing this. So it's a long way off, I have to say. It won't be an actual mammoth, but we might create something that looks a bit like a mammoth. And, um, you know, that's really interesting, really exciting. But I guess it's like with Jurassic Park. It begs the question, why? You know, why are we doing this? Mm. So, you know, that's for kind of like your listeners to think about. Do we want a world in the future where we've got woolly mammoths? Would they be a bit out of place? I don't, I don't know. But it's kind of intriguing. I think it's a brilliant idea, but it, it, it does come back to just because we can, does that mean we should? I mean, I have a cat, all right? I've got a cat, Helen. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Bear with me, please. Where are we going with this? Her name is Tiggy the Terra Tabby. Now, she is an indoor cat. And I've been told that maybe she shouldn't go outside because cats are a new predator in the ecosystem. So you've got all these little creatures kind of buzzing about doing their own thing and then you suddenly plop in this this quite giant cat for them, which could cause chaos. How much of a factor is that when we're talking about bringing these extinct creatures back that suddenly you're plonking a kind of woolly mammoth into an environment that might destroy it. It might end up killing off other creatures. Yeah. Well, first of all, I have to say cats are notoriously unpredictable. Who knows what they do? I have an indoor cat too, so I can kind of get where you're coming from. Oh, I know what my cat will do. She'll hiss and scratch at me. She's perfectly predictable. (laughs) Mine would probably go, oh my God, what is this outdoor space? And sprint straight back inside. Um, Yeah. But in terms of dumping a woolly mammoth, right, which hasn't seen the modern world in the modern world, um, there are places like on the far north of the globe, places like Siberia, where there is space for a woolly mammoth. And there are places where there is habitat for a woolly mammoth. The question is, does this woolly mammoth know how to be a woolly mammoth? If it's brought up by an elephant, which the first generation would need to be, will it be able to... T- we know, for example, that elephants and we think mammoths were really sociable creatures, right? Lived in these big family groups. So if you've got like the first lone mammoth growing up without a mammoth mum, how does it know how to be a mammoth? And will it create havoc in the ecosystem? Well, the answer is we don't know, but we need to be thinking about these issues a long way ahead. You know, people who are bringing back the woolly mammoth do want to release them into the wild in the long run. But um, yeah, we need to think about that. The other thing about the woolly mammoth, right, if you're going to bring back an animal from extinction, don't choose a carnivore. (laughs) That's that's, you know, for obvious reasons, but a herbivore, something that eats plants like a woolly mammoth, right, less likely to be a problem. And some people would argue that the woolly mammoth actually, because it um, will basically mow the grass, it will poo a lot, it will fertilise um, the environment where it lives, right, that creates habitat for other animals to thrive. So there might be more little insects and bugs around, and then there might be more birds come to feed on the bugs. And then there might be more middle-sized meat-eating animals that come and eat the birds. So actually, you know, it could be positive for the environment, but we need to think about this really carefully. And the bottom line is, we just don't know yet. 
So, yeah, we need to think about these things. We're talking about you as a natural world expert. So you've written for BBC Science Focus. Interesting. BBC Wildlife. Interesting. The Guardian. Interesting for older people. But check this out. Science advisor for the Beano. <laughs> yeah. What? How does that? How does that? Yeah, great. We've spoken about extinct creatures. How does that work? So who, did you just get a phone call and they say, oh, Dennis and Nasha want to do this today. Is it possible? Yeah, sort of something like that. Well, basically, it came back to one project where um, the Beano were looking for a scientist to um, come up with like a mathematical formula for the best fart is what they wanted to come up with, right? And so um, they were looking for a scientist to give this thing some credibility. And I thought, well, hang on a minute here. There is some quite good, some quite good science here. How, how do you work out what the, the best fart is? So we, <laughs> we collected from the sound archives hundreds of farts, right? Hundreds. And then we sorted them into different groups. So long ones, short ones, squeaky ones, <laughs> wet ones. Am I being too graphic? I don't know. And then as a piece of genuine scientific research, we went round and played like a variety of farts to different people and asked them to say which ones they liked. And then we looked at the, the qualities that that fart had, so how loud it is, how long it is, what frequency it is. Uh, and looked at the characteristics that make a fart really satisfying and then turned it into a mathematical equation. So I helped them to do that. <laughs> and they said, well, you can call yourself science advisor to the Beano. So I thought, yeah, I'm having that. That's, that is fantastic. <laughs> so, yeah, it all came down to, to a big experiment about farts, basically. Well, I need to ask you. Yeah. And I actually, I could, I could spend like the best part of today trying to figure out why farts are different. But what, what, what did you gather or what kind of fart is the best fart? Do you know what? I think you have to go to the Beano website and look it up. Uh, we did a lot of stuff about it. I can't remember the top of my head, but it was a while ago I did this. But I think it was, <laughs> I think it was not too short, not too long, mm. not too loud, mm. not too quiet, uh, definitely not too wet is really, yeah. really important because that can hint at all sorts of other problems. Um, and yeah, there was some consensus as to what what people thought was the best fart. It it so yeah, it is a bit different to um, Goldilocks's porridge, isn't it? Not too hot, not too cold. It's just right. Uh, li listen, uh, there are so many books that you've got out, Helen. You've got books about garden experiments, about yeah. biology, how you can navigate the living world. There's so much going on, and it's been a real treat to talk to you, natural world expert on mammoths. And farting, Helen Pilcher, thank you for joining us. <laughs> thank you for having me, Dan. Before we finish up this week, I wonder if you're keen for a very quick journey. It's a very quick journey, but we travel an awfully long way. We're headed to the smartest school in the solar system, now Deep Space High. We've been getting lessons there for the last few weeks with Professor Pulsar. He's teaching us all about the Earth, right? Because in Deep Space High, there is this massive panoramic window and it looks slap bang down onto our planet right here. We've been learning all about how it's made, what the oceans, what the lands are made out of. This week, Professor Pulsar is teaching us all about the movements of the Earth, about vibration and earthquakes and volcanoes. Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Hey, 
Hey, Sam, did you know that in the last minute you've travelled 16 miles? Um, no, I haven't. I've just been sat here watching the footy. Yeah, but this planet you're sitting on is travelling at an incredible 1,000 miles an hour. You just don't really feel the speed because, well, it's like when you're in a train or a car. Everything around you is moving at the same speed. That's right. Planets move in all sorts of ways you might not realise, like under your feet. It's a mad muddle of movement down there. Come on, let's see for ourselves. Under your feet, the Earth's crust and upper part of the mantle are broken into large pieces called tectonic plates. These are constantly moving at a few centimetres each year. Although this doesn't sound like very much, over millions of years the movement allows whole continents to shift thousands of kilometres. This process is called continental drift. Hey, yeah, if you look at all the countries on a map or a globe, it's a bit like a jigsaw that's been pulled apart. That's right, good tip that one, a great way to see for yourself. All because of continental drift. Now, continents floating slowly apart is one thing, but where the plates meet, things get a lot more unstable. too. Sometimes the crust may even crumple to form mountain ranges. Let's get out of here. So mountains were made by the earth moving? Some of them were for sure. The Himalayas, for example, are a stunning mountain range caused by the movement of tectonic plates. You can find pictures of them on the internet. Wow, they're big. Hmm, as we don't get earthquakes in the UK... Does that mean there's not much tectonic plate activity here? Well, actually, there are quite a few earthquakes in the UK every month. They just tend to be too small to feel. If you can visit the Natural History Museum in London, there's a special earthquake room where you feel what a big one is like. I suppose we're lucky not to have to worry about volcanoes. Couldn't agree with you more, although that wasn't always the case. Come on, I've got one last thing to show you. Devon is one of the places that you can find a lot of pumice. That's a stone made from lava. And you get lava from... Volcanoes! Lucky for you, the volcanoes were erupting in this part of the planet many millions of years ago. Edinburgh is another place where you can see an old volcano. The castle's built on one. Shows you things don't stay the same on planets. Hey, Pulsar, what do you call a cute volcano? Lavable! Of all the things a volcano is... I don't think lovable is one. Deep Space High, Earthwatch, with support from the Royal Astronomical Society. Find out more at funkidslive.com slash deepspacehigh. Well, I hope you made it back safely from the smartest school in the solar system. We'll have another lesson with Professor Pulsar at Deep Space High next week. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. If you want to hear more of some of the brilliant series that we've heard so far today, you can listen to them all on the free Fun Kids app at funkidslive.com. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Have a listen over at funkidslive.com on the free Fun Kids app and on your DAB digital radio. And if you want to hear even more of this podcast, ad-free and with those bonus episodes that I mentioned earlier where I just answer your questions, become a subscriber, you'll get access to 30 Fun Kids podcasts without any ads, loads of bonus stuff there too over at Fun Kids Podcast Plus. And I'll see you next week.